You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We are at the end of John 6. We'll be in verses 60 through 71. As we continue in our series through the Gospel of John, where we are just being invited over and over again to come and see the worth and power and majesty of Jesus himself, and then the call to respond rightly to him. In the Gospel of John, there is this rhythm happening throughout it where Jesus does something amazing or says something profound, and then you see people respond to him. And that's going to actually begin to intensify now where we are in the gospel of john it's going to intensify even more some respond rightly to him and they give him the glory that he deserves while others respond in wrong ways and they ultimately reject jesus and the call of the gospel of john is how will you respond to jesus come and see him for all that he is and all that his glory and majesty and worth And now how are you going to respond to him? Our hope would be that we would respond to him rightly. Follow along with me as I read God's word. John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word, and there are some times when we come and we say, that's a hard thing. That's hard to understand, or that's hard to accept, Lord. We, the only way, we hear in this this word, Lord, is the only way we receive what your word has to say is by your spirit. You must give life to us. You must apply your word to our hearts and minds. Lord, we ask for that very thing now. 
Lord, we come to you, all of us with baggage, some of us dead in sin, some of us made alive from our sins, some of us distracted, some of us heart-weary and burdened. Lord, all sorts of things. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit now. Lord, take your word and apply it to our hearts and minds. Cause us to fall in love more and more with you, precious Jesus. Cause us to see you in all of your glory and might and splendor. And let us be enthralled and worship you. Please will you do this this morning, that you may be exalted among us. Lord, we pray these things knowing you are able to do far more abundantly than anything that we ask or think. Oh, exalt yourself today. In Jesus' name we pray and the church says, amen. Amen. We live in a time when being able to tell the difference between what is real and what is fake is harder than ever. Growing up, the biggest concern I had was telling the difference between real and fake Tommy Hilfiger and polo shirts at the flea market that my grandpa took me to. That was the, hard, that was the biggest deal for me. Are those real Tommy Hilfiger shirts? Um, but now we have what's called artificial intelligence, AI, that's able to generate what are being called deep fakes. Have you heard of that? Deep fakes. They are these fake pictures or videos or audio that put someone's face on someone else's face or make, makes a voice, their voice, sound like someone else's voice so that they do or say something that's very believable, but it's actually very, very fake. It makes it incredibly hard to tell the difference between what is real and what is fake. We live in that world. I looked up, I, I thought about sharing some articles and things. I looked up over the last 48 hours, the last 48 hours alone, article after article from major news outlets talking about the danger of deep fake videos and photos and voice stuff and how that can just, false information is getting out and leading people astray and all sorts of stuff. More than ever, we have to be on guard for what is real and what is fake. I'll tell you, I was almost duped this past week. I was scrolling through social media, which I probably shouldn't have been doing as much as I was doing it. And I'm scrolling through social media and I came across, whoa, that's, this, this interview. Wow, this, could that be this interview? And all of these things are being said. Whoa. And then I find out in the end, as I do a little more research, it was fake completely fake. I don't know if that shows just how good these fake videos are being made or just how like old I'm getting where I'm like, I don't even know the difference anymore. I'm <laughs> just like, well, I don't know. I don't know. But it's incredible. It's scary almost. Being, being able to discern the difference between real or fake matters. In John chapter 6, we see the difference between real and fake disciples. It's a big deal. 
And the consequences of being a real or fake disciple are eternal. Packed into this little passage, you know, we may have thought, man, Pastor Rob had like 50 verses last week or something, poor guy. He did a great job too, such a good pastor. And we have like 11 verses this week, but packed into these 11 verses, oh my, it is like, there is danger all around. Being able to distinguish and discern between what is real and fake and specifically in these 11 verses, real or fake disciples. Over the last couple of weeks in John 6, we've seen this large group of, of people who are following Jesus, listening and, and learning from Jesus, and they've taken on the title of disciples, which is a very meaningful thing. These are people who have been with Jesus apparently long enough and intensely enough where they are being called and have taken on the name of disciples. In one sense, they maybe they're doing all the right things. Maybe you could see them as they're gathering with the church, they're singing the songs, they're giving offerings. They're gathering among the people following Jesus. But in our passage today, what we see of many of them, they don't stay with Jesus. Immediately, when, you, when we read this, that should grab at us. They're called disciples, but they don't stay with Jesus? That's very perplexing. They don't keep walking with Jesus. Jesus says hard things, and everyone is wrestling over what he has said, and here's what we see. There will be some who wrestle with the hard things of Jesus and will walk away from Jesus, revealing that at their core, they never really truly were disciples to begin with. They may have been doing the right things. They may have been with him for a few days, maybe longer. They may have been gathering with the people. They were learning from Jesus. They're taking notes. But in the end, they walk away grumbling and offended by Jesus. These are deep fakes of the real thing. They are deserting disciples. While on the other hand, we will see others wrestling with the same hard things said by Jesus, yet for them the wrestling will lead to worship. They will wrestle, and the wrestling leads to worship. They can't walk away from Jesus because for them He is everything. He is their very life, and they love Jesus, and they continue following Him. Though imperfect disciples, maybe even still wrestling disciples who have questions and all sorts of baggage and stuff, yet they are devoted disciples. And that's what we see in this passage today. There are deserting disciples, and there are devoted disciples. There are deserting disciples, though they may be curious about Jesus, but in the end they are blind to the glory and goodness of Christ, and then they ultimately will walk away from Jesus. They wrestle and they walk away from Jesus. And then we see the devoted disciples, though right here and right now, they may not quite get everything to its fullest degree about Jesus, yet he is their very life and they love him and they stay with him. And that's how we've broken up the sermon for this morning. Two points, deserting disciples and devoted disciples. 
I do, before we, before we get to the first point, I do want to say this, though. I want to be careful with a passage like this. If you're anything like me, growing up, I wrestled with a, a sense of assurance of faith. I had this overwhelming sensitivity to my sin, which in one way can be good, but it can also in another way be paralyzing because I, was, I would be more aware of my sin than I was aware of his grace. And so I want to just speak to that for a second because coming to a passage like this, when we hear deserting disciples, am I, am I a deserting disciple? I struggle with sin. I sinned this week. I sinned this morning. Maybe I'm sinning right now. I don't know what's in your thoughts right now. But if that's you, where you struggle with just a very sensitive conscience and an awareness of your sin, the temptation can be to think, am I a true disciple or am I just a deserting disciple because I struggle with sin? I just want to be really clear and just say this. There is a difference between those who wrestle with the hard things of Jesus and then mock Jesus. Are you mocking Jesus? Do you reject Jesus? When you wrestle with him, do you take offense to him? I'm offended by you, Jesus. Is that your heart posture? If it is, then you should be worried. To take offense to Jesus, we'll talk about what that looks like. But there's a difference between someone who wrestles and then grumbles and mocks and takes offense to Jesus and ultimately is rejecting him in their hearts versus someone who wrestles with the hard things but yet keeps coming to Jesus. There's a difference between, oh, I just see Jesus, I just knew you would fail me again. Oh, versus Jesus, I am a weak little sheep and I doubt and I struggle. Lord, I need you to help me, Jesus. We, joining in with the man, I believe, Jesus. Help my unbelief. There's a difference, right? So know that, precious saints. This passage is not to leave us all leaving here questioning and doubting our faith. But it is to awaken those hidden among us who really do could honestly say, I don't love Jesus, but I'm gathering with you. I'm intrigued by Jesus. I'm intrigued by his people. There's a difference, okay? There's a difference there. Oh, Lord Jesus, meet us in this. Meet us in this. Guard our hearts. Let me just, one more moment. Lord Jesus, guard our hearts from this very thing. If there are those hidden among us who think they're okay, they're comfortable, would you make them uncomfortable? Lord, those who really... They join with those in singing and all of the church gathering, but really in their hearts, they just don't, they just could care less about you. Lord, would you awaken them to you? And Lord, for those of us in the room, Lord, who are just wrestling normal disciples, Lord, may we be stirred on in you with greater love and worship for you, even in the midst of maybe wrestling. Amen. Amen. Point one. The deserting disciples. The deserting disciples. In John 6, if you remember, Jesus has just done two miracles. The feeding of the 5,000 with bread and fish. And then later that night, he walked on 
water in the midst of a storm. And as people are continuing to follow him, we found out that they are essentially just wanting more bread. That's why they're following him. We just want more bread. They want Jesus to fill their bellies. And so Jesus went into a teaching where he declared that just as the people of God in the Exodus fed on manna and had sustained life in the wilderness, God has now sent Jesus himself as living bread sent from heaven. And the only way people find true life is that they must come to him and spiritually take of him alone as spiritual food and nourishment. If they are to have true and eternal life, Jesus is essentially declaring to them that that religious practices and their good works will not gain them eternal life. It's only by receiving all that Jesus is, by partaking and abiding in all of Jesus and in Jesus alone, they need it. What Jesus is declaring is they don't need new rules. They don't need bread. They don't need fish. What they really need is the whole Jesus. That's what they need. They needed all of Jesus, every bit of him. And we need all of Jesus too. We need all of him. We need the whole Jesus. You can't take bits and pieces of Jesus. You got to take him as he is. And here's the honest truth. To some, it's very offensive. Taking him as, as whole in all that he is and says that he is, for some, is a stumbling block. And that's the conflict happening in John chapter 6. They are following Jesus. They're listening to what Jesus has to say. They look like disciples, but, but what they really want to see Jesus do is just more miracles, and they simply want him to satisfy their physical hunger. But Jesus wants to satisfy their spiritual hunger. That's the conflict happening here. They're, they're, they're misidentifying Jesus, and Jesus wants to be identified rightly who he is and what he gives. Their view of who Jesus is and what he gives has fallen short of who he truly is and what he truly desires to give to them. And so in response to all that Jesus has said, the response in verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And they take offense to what Jesus has said and begin to grumble. Now, if you remember, when we started John chapter 6, we we talked about this, that behind the scenes throughout all of the chapter, there are these Old Testament echoes of the Exodus happening. It's happening during the Passover. Jesus goes up to pray on the mountain as Moses did, the crossing of the body of the water as if on dry land. And just like what happened in the Exodus when God had provided manna in the wilderness, and what did the people do? They grumbled, didn't they? They grumbled in the wilderness. God provided for them out of the kindness of his heart. He feeds them and sustains them. He he provides for them what they truly need in the wilderness to have life in the wilderness. And they turn and grumble at him. Now, here in John chapter 6, the same exact thing is happening. 
Jesus provides bread for them in the wilderness physically and reveals that there is a greater bread of heaven, the glorious offer of God to give them this eternal bread of life in Jesus himself. And what do they do? They grumble. They grumble. We're meant to see the blindness and hardness of heart these deserting disciples have. Deserting disciples on the outside, they may seem to be following Jesus, but they, they're, they're blind to recognizing the true goodness of God towards them in the person and work of Jesus himself. There is no genuine gladness in Jesus, just a grumbling towards him. Do you hear that? Deserting disciples at their core, there is no genuine gladness in Jesus. Just a grumbling towards them. Concealed, hidden within them is a hidden hardness of heart towards Jesus that's revealed when Jesus says hard things. The hidden concealed hardness of heart towards Jesus is actually brought out and revealed when Jesus says hard things. The hard things of Jesus offends them. The Bible is filled with hard things, isn't it? Let's be honest, it's filled with hard things, things hard to understand or hard to accept, most likely. Hard to accept. Think about the things that you consider hard things of Scripture? What are the hard things that you, when you read the Bible, when you consider the Bible, what are the hard things that land on you? Maybe the Trinity. It's hard to understand that. Father, Son, Spirit, they're all different, but yet they're one operating at the same time. How does, okay, it's difficult to understand. Maybe God's sovereignty yet man's responsibility operating at the same time in this world that we live? How can God be sovereign, yet man be responsible? How does that happen? How do they go together? Maybe the gifts of the Spirit? That scares me, or I don't understand it, or I've seen it done poorly, and so I'm, I'm hesitant And then at times Jesus says hard things. So those, those are just hard things in the Bible. Jesus says hard things like, let the dead bury the dead. Well, well he just wants to go, he just wants to go see his family off, Jesus. He just wants to go bury his, his dad. Just let the dead bury the dead. That's a hard thing, Jesus. Pick up your cross and follow me. Well, Jesus, I thought you carry the cross, so I don't have to carry that cross. So I have to carry a cross? That's a hard thing. I have to die? I have to die to myself? If I want to gain life, I have to lose it? That's a hard thing, Jesus. Because I want a really, really good, happy life right now. I haven't come to bring peace but the sword? What? Jesus, all heaven cried out, peace on earth and goodwill towards men when you were born. But you haven't come to bring peace, but you brought the sword. What does that mean, Jesus? 
If you love your father and mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. That's a hard thing, Jesus. Lastly, you have to eat and drink me if you want eternal life. That's a hard thing, Jesus. Jesus says hard things, doesn't he? He doesn't just say hard things to rile people up for fun. We live in a society where pastors think that's what we do. We're just going to say hard things to rile people up. Jesus is offensive enough. Just preach Jesus and there will be offense. You don't got to make it more than what it is. We don't got to be purposefully offensive. Jesus doesn't just say things to rile people up. But when he says hard things, they are very much still true things. So just know that. When we hear the hard things of Scripture, they are true things. When he says hard things, it serves to reveal the hidden things of what people truly think and feel towards him. He does it all the time. I want to follow you, Jesus. Okay, then go and sell all of your things and come on. I don't want to follow you that much, Jesus. Isn't that how he leads? Because that's what was really there. The hard things reveal the hidden things of how we truly feel and think about Jesus. And if it offends us, We are offended by truth. We may not always grasp the hard things right away. We may wrestle with some hard things our entire life, but to be offended at Jesus because of those hard things reveals a heart that is rejecting truth and ultimately rejecting Jesus who is in and of himself truth personified. Jesus recognizes this in them and says, do you take offense to this? Are you offended by me and by what I said? Do you take offense to this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus is tying in something in verse 42 that they had already grumbled about. But they said in verse 42, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? We know his parents. We've seen him grow up. How does he now say he comes down from heaven? And so Jesus responds to that. You're offended by what I say. Wait until you see the Son of Man ascending. You're going to be really offended. Wait till you start hearing my disciples preach about me resurrecting from the dead when you thought I was dead and living again and then ascending. How offensive that's going to be to you. If you're offended by this, you wait to the resurrection and ascension. How much more offensive am I going to be to you? And isn't that still true today? It is so foolish to people and offensive. We are weird to the world. (laughs) Oh my 
you're offended by the claims I've made, Jesus says, about coming from heaven, being the bread of heaven, and the only way by which you get to heaven, imagine when you see me go back to heaven. The otherworldly claims of Jesus are offensive and foolish to the unbelieving heart. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, it'll be up on the screen. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, that's what you're seeing happen, right, in this passage. You're seeing that dichotomy happen. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's exactly what Jesus points out about what what is at the core of these deserting disciples grumbling and offense to Jesus in verses 63 and 65 and it's the same it's the same that's happening in people today when they're grumbling and offended by Jesus they are people of the flesh devoid of the spirit of God unbelieving Jesus said People of the flesh, devoid of the Spirit of God, unbelieving. We cannot believe Jesus' words that are spiritual when we don't have the Spirit, is essentially what he's saying. You can't believe what I'm saying. These words that are beyond you, that are otherworldly, that just crush the wisdom of the world. You can't believe these things that are spiritual when you don't have the Spirit. Hear this. Oh my... He's saying this to people who have been walking with him. They've been doing all the right things. But inside, they don't truly believe. One, it's incredibly piercing that there are those who can walk among the crowd with Jesus for however long, hiding and yet never truly believing. It's incredibly piercing and awakening. And at the same time, it's incredibly piercing in this way. Jesus knows everyone who's with him. He's, He's not fooled by a single moment. He already knew those who didn't believe, it says. So among the 5,000 people who are there wanting to hear him, everyone else is watching. The disciples are saying, wow, here comes the crowd. This is what we've been waiting for. Jesus knows every single heart coming. And he, he knows those who are coming who don't even truly love him and want him. They just want the bread he gives. They just want to see him do a miracle. He knew from the start. It's incredibly piercing. Jesus cannot be fooled. We can't fool Jesus. We might be able to fool people around us. We might be able to somewhat live two lives, a double life. You can't fool Jesus. As a pastor, I've sort of, I've tried to release that to him. Because as a pastor, you're like, well, 
you know, you feel responsible for everyone, first of all. Those among us. But there's a point where I have to say, Jesus, you know truly what's in the heart of every person. And so my job is just to pursue them, care for them, love them, speak truth to them, correct them when needed, care for them in the midst of heartache and trouble. But you know what's at the core of every person. You know, I, I have to cling to these truths when I see, when I see, when I see pastors who are celebrity pastors all of a sudden write books, I kissed Christianity goodbye. And the damage that does to the church because most Christians will say, what, is, what does that mean? Wasn't this guy walking with Jesus for so long? Wasn't he doing the stuff? Preaching? He was, just like Judas. He was. But what we hear here is those who ultimately end, their end is grumbling and opposing Jesus and they take offense to Jesus and they kiss Christianity goodbye. It's because they were never truly a disciple in the first place. They may have hidden for a long time. But Jesus knows those who truly believe and those who don't have belief. That's what's being declared in this verse, in these verses. I hope that settles your heart. I hope in some ways that just reassures your heart. If we, if we are people without the Spirit, we are people of the flesh, people operating in the wisdom of the world. Our fallen human nature cannot comprehend the otherworldly yet true things of God apart from divine intervention. And if we are people of the flesh, we will only walk with Jesus for so long and then at some point we will walk away. Because Jesus says, those who come to me, I keep them. I keep them. Jesus says, the flesh is no help at all. Some translations say, the flesh profits nothing. Martin Luther, in the 1500s, had this debate with a man named Erasmus. And Erasmus believed that at the core of every person who is even lost, at the core of every person, there is some good that can lead them to choose Christ. And Luther, in response to that, among, he wrote many other things, but among one of the things that he wrote was, according to this passage of John chapter 6, when Jesus says the flesh is good for nothing, Erasmus, Jesus means nothing. And if we're people of the flesh devoid of the Spirit, then there is nothing in us, nothing in us that can make us truly believe in Christ and love Him and follow Him and choose Him over these worldly things. Martin Luther said, nothing is nothing. That nothing that Jesus is speaking of is not a little something. It's nothing. It is only by the Spirit indwelling us, granted to us by 
God the Father opening our eyes and hearts and minds to the truth Jesus proclaims and his words move, that his words move from being offensive to us and foolish to us to being life to us. There is nothing in and of ourselves that can see Christ rightly apart from the Spirit of God rushing upon us and shining light upon Christ, enabling us to see him fully and truly for who he really is and then respond to him rightly. And that is called sovereign grace. That is the, the divine initiative in God, of God in salvation. I loved it. Our brother Josh used that this morning. That is the divine initiative of God in our salvation. And even that may be one of the hard things for you. It's hard for me to understand that, Jesus. It's hard, but here's, here's the truth. When we grasp that truth of God's sovereign grace and his divine initiative, when we grasp that truly, it doesn't lead us to say, see Jesus, then who can come to you? With grumbling hearts towards Jesus and opposing Jesus, when we truly grasp that, it leads us to saying, Jesus, I don't know how or why you would call me to know you, but you have. And I am eternally grateful, Lord Jesus. I am humbled that you would do such a thing because you didn't have to. And I don't know why you would do it. But here I am, and I'm yours, and I'm, I'm glad, and I'm grateful, and I'm humbled by it. Thank you, Jesus. Do you see the difference? One response says, I'm grumbling towards what you've done, Jesus. The other response says, oh my goodness, I'm amazed at what you've done. That's the difference here. That's the difference here. How is it that you would call me to come to know you? I'm amazed at you, Jesus. These deserting disciples were never true disciples because they are actually people of the flesh, Jesus is, is drawing out, who don't really believe because they don't have the Spirit granted to them by the Father. And so what happens? They turn away from Jesus and no longer walk with him. And here's the thing. It's not that they went away for a short time and then came back to him. Because I do think, I, I really do think, that Christians stumble and struggle. And sometimes we stumble and struggle really hard. Right? And we wrestle. But I think in the end, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. That person will not. Walk away from Jesus forever. They may be a rebellious little sheep. They may be, but they will follow Christ. And I think this point, I think it makes it clear here. The original language is very helpful in this particular verse for the word that's translated no longer. The original language is very helpful. So that word that's translated no longer is a word that is decisive. It's the same word that is used in Ephesians 2 whenever Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are now the family, the household of God. That word is definitive. And when, in our English language, it just sounds kind of loose. Oh, they no longer walked with them. No, it's like a, a more literal translation, never again. So in Paul in Ephesians 2, you are never again strangers and aliens in the family of Christ. 
You are, it is decisive. It is done. Never again called a stranger to Jesus. Here, you translate that over. They no longer walked with him. It's not that casual. No, it's, it's, it's a word better translated. Never again. They never again walked with Jesus. That's what's being shown here. That's why these are deserting disciples. And that should help your assurance of faith really quick, shouldn't it? So I think it's so important for us to know that. They never again walked with Jesus. They, it, it's incredibly heartbreaking. They turn away from Jesus. Jesus just fed the 5,000. He did miracles. He walks on water. And yet they turn away from Jesus. And actually the word, they turn back. They turn back. Well, back to what? Back to whatever they were putting their hope in before Jesus came along. incredibly heartbreaking they can look at Jesus some people say if I just saw Jesus here and now I would believe no no they saw him work miracles and they turned back never again to follow Jesus it makes me even more glad that daily we turn back to Jesus that's what it should do. It should make us even more glad. Lord, there are those, I see this, they turn back to the things they were putting their hope in before you. It makes me even more glad that daily I wake up and turn back to you. Even when I'm hurting, I'm broken, Lord, let me turn back to you. These are not merely wrestling disciples. These are rejectors of Jesus, lovers of the world, who never again walk with Jesus. What's even more startling about this passage is what's found in verses 70 and 71. Jesus would choose to allow one of these deserting disciples named Judas to remain with him, to eat bread with him. Jesus would wash his feet. Later on, John's going to highlight that, how Jesus washes his feet. Knowing all along he was going to betray him. Knowing all along he was a deserting disciple, yet he long suffers with them. He withholds his wrath for a time for time, and pours out his grace and mercy. Over and over again, the Gospel of John displays this very thing, the incredible, unmatched heart of Jesus. He is not after popularity. He is not trying to win over the majority. He's not in need of social acceptance as if to fulfill his identity. He is who he is, and so many reject him for it. But yet look at the courageous and holy compassion of God the Son. Look upon him. Knowing he is surrounded by rejectors. It says many of them left. Some Bible scholars say the wording sounds like majority of people left him. Surrounded by rejectors. Knowing their hearts. Knowing they're not really loving him and looking to him. 
He sits down with them, 5,000, many of whom grumbling about him, offended by him, knowing they would turn away and turn back and leave him and never again follow him, one in which would betray him to the cross, and yet being the holy and compassionate God who takes no delight in the punishment of the wicked, he continues to pour out his grace upon undeserving people over and over again. Because what does he do? He cares for them. He fed them. He looks upon them and has compassion towards people who don't deserve it. Even those who will never walk with him. And doesn't he do the same thing today? Doesn't he? Yes. Yes, church. And it's meant... As we, the, the, the sermon series, right, is come and see. We're not, just com- we're not just coming to see these deserving disciples. We're coming to see Jesus who patiently and mercifully deals with deserting disciples. Look and be amazed at how patient he is. Look and be amazed at how he long suffers with people. Look and be amazed at his mercy towards the sinful. And he's still doing it today. And that should amaze us and make us fall even more in love with him. Oh, I love him. I love him. I so want you to love him. And I, I know many of you do. I've got, to, I've got to hurry here. The difference between unbelief and belief in Jesus is both groups hear the hard things, Jesus says. Both groups may even wrestle with the hard things, but one group grumbles, takes offense, and moves away from Jesus, while the other hears the hard things, yet still considers Jesus' words life to them. Devoted disciples, verses 67 through 69, devoted disciples. These verses have some of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. They are just the sweetest, absolute sweetest words. The deserting disciples turn away from Jesus, never again to walk with him. And Jesus turns to the twelve and asks them, Do you want to go away as well? And Peter answers him, Oh, and may this be our answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where will we go, Jesus? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter didn't deny that what Jesus said wasn't hard. But rather than being an offense to him. Peter recognizes Jesus' words are life to him. Your words may be hard, Jesus, but your words are life to me. When I hear them, I receive them, and they are food for my soul, and there is nowhere else I can go, or no one else I can go to where I will receive life like I do from you, Jesus. What I need most in this life is not the bread and fish you provided earlier. What I want and need most is you, Jesus. That's what what these words are saying. What I need most is you, Jesus. These other people are concerned with the bread and fish that you can give. Lord Jesus, I just want you. I need you. 
Where else can I go for life, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. What Peter is confessing is absolutely profound and spirit-induced, church. It is a spirit-induced, activated, initiated thing. It's a declaration brought about by the Spirit. Jesus just said, what I have to say is spirit and life. And the only way people will receive it is by the Spirit who gives life working in them. And now, just a few verses later, what is Peter's response? He may not completely grasp everything he's declaring in this very moment. He may not have full understanding of Jesus. I think we'll see that later in the Gospel of John, not, at least not until the resurrection and ascension or Pentecost. But what Peter is declaring here is absolutely true and right of Jesus. Only in Jesus do we find true life. Only in Jesus. Nothing else and no one else can give us life like He can. There's nothing else for us to turn back to. Right? There's nothing else for us to turn back to. There's nothing. His words of instruction are good for us. His words of promises assure us and steady us. His words of wisdom lead us. His words of truth feed us. His words are rest for the weary and hope for the downcast and refreshing and satisfying drink for the thirsty. His words are life to us because they point us to the source of life. What does Jesus always talk about? Himself. God the Father. What God is doing and has done. Jesus' words are life because they point us to Himself. To the source of life. Jesus Himself. They call us in one sense. When I hear that, when I hear that, your words are life. It's as if the words of Christ, they just call to us, come and see and find true life in Him alone. Come and see. Come and put your hope in Him. Come and know His love. Come and know His peace. Come and know this precious Jesus and have true life. Peter actually makes two profound statements here. Jesus has the words of life, so it's what Jesus has and who Jesus is. He says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. Yes, brother. You are not merely a man, Jesus. You are not merely a prophet. You are not merely another worldly king or Moses-type figure like people thought earlier in John chapter 6. You are the holy, set-apart one of God. Come to us from the Father as the only way to the Father. That is who you are, Lord Jesus. The, John chapter 6 begins with people misidentifying Jesus. Right? John 6, people are misidentifying Jesus. Who is he? Can he even help us? We don't even know if he can help us. He's a prophet. He's like Moses. Let's make him king. And now here at the end of John 6, he's identified rightly. And we're invited to join in with Peter and say yes and amen. You have the words of life. Where else can I go? And on top of that, we believe and we have known. We have known you, Lord. We don't just know about you. We know you. And you are the Holy One of God. There is no other like you. 
No other like you. Joe Rigney wrote in on Desiring God this sweet, sweet paragraph. In a deeper sense, the hard sayings are actually invitations. They call us to see past the gifts from Jesus to Jesus himself. Do we only want what he gives or do we want him? The hard sayings call us to embrace the immeasurable worth of Jesus. They force us to recognize that we are starving and he alone is the bread of life. The Christian faith is filled with its hard sayings. But if we come to Jesus as uniquely satisfying, if he is the bread of life to us, if we believe and have come to know that he is the Holy One of God, then even the hard sayings will not deter us. Jesus himself as the living bread will so satisfy our souls that though we still may have questions about the hard sayings, we don't turn aside. We continue to seek Jesus. In other words, embracing Jesus despite the hard sayings is the mark of those who are truly seeking Jesus for Jesus. Precious saints, that is my prayer for you. That is my prayer for us as a pastoral team. That is my prayer that when we have future deacons, that is my prayer for our fellowship group leaders, that is my prayer for you, that we would not want just only and merely what Jesus can give. That we would never, in a sense, right, long for the gifts over the giver that we would love Jesus, that we would long for Jesus, that the hard sayings, when we come to them as a church, when we come and we're going to preach through them, right? We preach expositionally, so we're not going to skip a verse. We're not going to skip over things. We're going to get to those things. And when we come to those things, that we would say, this is a harder saying, Jesus, but we're not going anywhere because we love you. We love you. We know there's truth in that hard saying rather than give us eyes that see Jesus. Give us ears that truly hear and open up our minds to understand and give us hearts that believe, Lord Jesus, every single hard thing you have to say. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, do this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot love you. We cannot treasure you. We cannot take the, the, your words and treat them as words of life apart from the Spirit at work in us. And so, Lord, I look at this precious church and I see many who would say, I love you, Jesus. And your words are life to me and I want to know them more and I want to know you more, Lord Jesus. Thank you, because the only way, the only way your precious people have that heart posture is because your spirit is at work in them. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And so I pray now, I do pray, what I just exclaimed before the church, Lord, I do pray, Lord, as pastors, as leadership teams in the church, as fellowship group leaders, Lord, 
all of us, Lord, that, Lord, we would love you and treasure you. Lord Jesus, that we would come to you and that we would say, there's nowhere for us to turn back to. There's nothing else that can compare to you. We long for you and we love you and we want more of you. Lord Jesus, make it so. Make it so that we would be a church for generations. That we maybe won't... Lord, there are so many things churches can be known for. May we be known for just loving you, Jesus. Wholeheartedly and desperately. Like little sheep who just can't bear being away from you. Lord, would you do this in us? And may it reflect in the way we spend our time. May it reflect the way we spend what we have. May it reflect the way we spend our energy that we long for you. Where else can we go? Lord, I pray you would guard us from seeking life in vain, worthless things. Guard us, Lord. Help us. Help us. We confess we are so tempted to go after those things. Oh, Lord, may you be May you shine ever brighter in our eyes. May the glory and beauty of Christ absolutely capture our gaze so that our eyes are pulled away from those lesser things to you. And Lord, when we do, lastly, when we do come across hard things, Lord, Lord, may they be life to us. May they be life to us. Where else can we go, Lord Jesus? Where else can we go?